We don't always, in fact, I may say we seldom appreciate fully what we just sang and what we are just about to do in opening God's Word. And the reason I say that is because what we, what we consider here today, what we meditate on here today, is of extreme significance. So significant, and yet one that the world has no answer for. One that we would be just left to drift in a sea, washing around in pain and trials, and wondering what's the point of it all, and how to respond to it all. You see, when it comes down to it, there can be plenty of practical counseling advice for those in difficult situations, and yet all of those will fail, will not bring about the result of what the gospel does and what James reveals to us today in what is admittedly a very difficult topic, a topic of suffering, a topic of pain and trial, and yet as we just sang, how firm a foundation we have in such situations, so firm a foundation that Christians throughout the centuries have exhibited what no, no other populace could, because it was God who strengthened them. It was God who allowed them to approach and endure suffering and trials with peace, with joy, with determination and strength. This is our heritage. This is what we're commanded to do. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to James? We begin our series through the letter of James. James is on page 1,288 in your pew Bibles. Today we'll be focusing on verses 1 through 4. We're going to take our time through the first chapter. Spend a lot of time there as it brings up, it introduces a lot of the themes that will be talked of in the rest of the book. Today we experience and meditate on God's words for joyful suffering. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing. Father in heaven, we turn to your word, and we turn to it humbly, recognizing its authority. Its authority as the very, your very word coming down to us in its perfection, in its inerrancy, its infallibility. And we pray, Lord, that you would soften our hearts in Holy Spirit, that you would convict us, and that you would help this word to dwell in us richly, that we would apply it. And Lord Jesus, we praise you that this word is your very revelation of your mission, of who you are and what you have done to us. We see that here in this text as in all others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. James 1, 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We're going to read verses 2 through 4 again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I recently read a novel and a book in which one of the main characters wrestled with a question 
And this question was put to him by a, a wise figure in the book, something of a, of a sage, a wise old man who, who asked this character, what's the most important step one could take? You can think of like a journey, going out on a journey, or, or the steps of life. Well, what's the most important one, most important step you can take? And throughout this book, this character wrestled with that, and he assumed throughout the book that it's the first. The first step is the most important. Is that not the one that leads you down the journey, that you must begin the journey? You have to take that first step. Well, it wasn't until later in the book, in the midst of a battle, severe trials, what was going on, all that had come down upon him, and he was ready to collapse and ready to give up, for he couldn't continue anymore. And then it dawned on him that the, the most important step isn't the first, but the next. Now, what does that mean? Persevere. Perseverance, steadfastness. You see, the next step is the only one that we can take. And when we take that out of a novel and put it here in our understanding of what the Bible is saying, what James is saying to us is that the, the important steps for God's people to take is the next one of their faith. The next step of faith in endurance through the trials, persevering, take that next step. And that's, that's really what this whole book is about in a way. A letter to a dispersed group of Christians telling them to remain steadfast, how to view what they're going through in a whole bunch of situations. James is very practical. James deals with many different topics, so much so that many scholars think there's no structure or, or over, overabundant theme in James, that it just, it's sort of just one thing after another. I don't think that's true. I think we could say that the theme of James is simply living for Jesus. Living for Jesus. How do you live for Jesus? How do you do that when you're poor? How do you do that in your trial? How do you do that when you're rich? How do you do that at a party when you could show partiality to someone? James deals with that. How do you live for Jesus with your tongue and direct your speech? How do you live for Jesus when you are sick and in need of prayer? All these things are an effort to put the gospel into practice. And he opens with what is the most important topic remaining steadfast in trials, persevering. And to properly understand what he's doing, we have to understand the context of this book. So our first point this morning is an introduction to James. We're going to try to briefly set out what's, what's happening in this book and some of the background to this book. This is a short letter that James wrote, which James is this. This is very likely James, the half-brother of Jesus of the Jerusalem church. He's the only James mentioned in the Bible that would have been well-known enough and in the right situation that he could just introduce himself to all these churches as James. To be known by that. And he writes this, he, he directs his letter to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, referring to these Christians, many of whom were Jewish, who had spread out from Jerusalem. Quite likely the spreading had been as a result of persecution and trial. And so this, the church was, in one sense, running, you could say. They're, they're, on, they're in fleeing, they're at flight. And so what, is, what does he tell them? He writes to those, as we see in this book, because of the topics he deals with. He writes to those suffering from great poverty. He writes to those who have great wealth. He writes to those possibly going through famine, certainly going through displacement in new regions, and quite certainly going through persecutions. But what does he say in our text? 
various persecutions, myriad persecutions, many. It's not just limited to one. What, what would a people group that has been displaced, that is on the run, that has moved out, that is in a Gentile world, trying to live a faith that the rest of the world ridicules, how many trials might they face? You could see just by that question, there are so many. So many ways that they could be persecuted. So many trials that they would deal with. So we see his answer then is to call for wisdom in this book. I'm just going to give you some of the major headings and and themes he deals with. He calls for wisdom. He exhorts to persevere in trials. He deals with the relationship between rich and poor. He deals with favoritism and partiality. He deals with what deeds are in relation to our faith. A very important, important topic. What do our works matter and what, how do they relate to faith? He deals with restraining speech, discords in the community. He deals with swearing and prayers of healing. Very practical. Very practical to determine our own lives. How do we live for Christ? How do we apply the gospel to these situations? Many would argue that James is something of a lesser book. Martin Luther very famously had some rather negative words to say about James, and his reasoning was that the gospel wasn't as explicit there, that that it wasn't talked about as clearly as it is in other books, that Jesus isn't even mentioned with great frequency. His name is mentioned only twice. What, What does this have to do, then, with the gospel? And many have seen this book simply as moral behavior modification and see it as lesser. I would like to use an illustration to show how important James is. What must be part of every sermon so that it is a true sermon? Well, the text needs to be appropriately explained and taught. It needs to be rooted in the text and scripture. But then the text needs to show Christ, show how Christ is revealed here and what this means with the gospel. And the text as well, in its third point, needs to be applied. It needs to know, here's what the Bible says, here's what Christ has done, and here's how you apply it. That's what we always strive to in sermons. Well, what this analogy, I would say, James, is that application of those points. The gospel isn't non-existent here. The gospel is applied here. Christ isn't ignored here. Christ is understood to be so present. God is understood to be so present that we must make the rest of our life and have the rest of our life fit for God's glory and into the gospel. And so it's all present. God and Jesus are placed at the center of the book. And you see that even in these first verses. Who is writing? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a profound statement. Just to unpack that opening greeting. He's James the servant or slave. Which is to show not only his humility before God, but as well a title. Often the prophets, often those in the Old Testament, were called the the slaves of the Lord. Servants of God. And that's what James identifies himself here. So not only a humble acknowledgement, but as well as he is the servant of the Lord, and so he brings this message. But how does he reference God? He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, James is a Jew. 
And so here is a Jew, very early on in the church, making a reference to God, and then right after it says, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, calling Jesus Christ Lord. The reason that's significant is later in the book, James will call God Lord, same term. In fact, he does that so frequently where there are at times when he will refer to the Lord or God, and you don't know if he's referring to Christ or to the Father, as we would say it, and that, that sort of confusion, or not confusion, but is he meaning this, is he meaning that, is likely, likely purposeful. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Lord. The Lord is also the way you would translate Yahweh from the Old Testament, that covenantal name, and he applies it to Jesus here as well. And so he's giving to Jesus the titles of divinity. He's treating him as he truly is, divine. And so James' Christology is not lacking. The reason I'm going into this so much is it won't take you long to study James, to look at some commentaries and see that so much of the material introducing James deals with how he views Christ deals with, does, is the gospel present there and in what way? And I'm showing this to say he really does have a strong understanding of Christ. It undergirds everything he is going to say. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, he also applies to Jesus that term Christ. Now boys and girls, Jesus Christ is not his full name, with Jesus being his first name and Christ being his last name. Christ is not a last name. It's a title. It's, it's telling something about who he is. It means it uses in the Old Testament a, a pretty interesting term, Messiah, or anointed one. What does anointed one mean? It's those who were anointed with holy oil, holy oil. Oil that was set apart was placed on, on these figures' heads, and they were then called by God to fulfill a very special role, called by God for a specific purpose. Christ is the Messiah, the anointed one referring to the promised figure of the Old Testament who would come, and James applies that to Christ as well. That designation, Lord Jesus Christ. So James' Christology is clearly shown, and this is very important, that's why I'm keeping it in the introduction, as we are now about to step into the book itself, to look at trials and persecutions, it's very important to understand James's thought. And his thought is not, hey... Hey, people, you might find this interesting. Here's some advice for trials. Here's some advice for controlling your tongue. Here's some wise words. It's not just that at all. It's here's the command from God. How you live for God, how you live for the Lord Jesus Christ. That is who he writes on behalf of, directing all our attention to. And so that adds weight to every command he's going to give. That adds weight to what we are going to turn to right now when he commands the people facing persecutions and trials, the dispersed and perhaps fleeing. Count it all joy. Count it all joy for what it does for your faith, what it does for Christ. And so we see that in our second point, count it all joy. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This statement is bold. It's bold to this congregation who likely would not like to hear it. These are, in fact, the words that no one wants to hear someone else tell them in trial. And admittedly, you have to be careful how you talk to those in trial. But James, speaking as the servant of the Lord, is directing God's very commands. And in one sense, then, he does not need to be careful. He is being careful. I'm, I'm using this as a, as a point. He's saying exactly what needs to be done. 
You see, we relate to those in trials carefully because we want to express compassion. We want to express love, and we should. But he's showing what's the answer, what we must do, give that command, and what must be done, count it all joy. And I want us just to, to see and hear how alien that is to us. Think of everything in your life right now that is a trial, that is hard. Think especially of any ways that you, as a Christian, are persecuted by the world, in whatever way that may be. Do you, do we, count that as joy? Are we joyful in that? That's so alien to us. Though we may have heard this text so many times, it doesn't seem like it. In our practice, in our response, that application of the gospel is hard. Hard to hear and do, I would say. It's perhaps one of the hardest. Take God's word and at the very point of greatest pain, the greatest point where you find yourself pressed to allow it to change your own thinking, to allow it to shape all that you do. You see, James' point here, this is the point of our message this morning, the joy of trials is a strong, steadfast faith. The joy of trials is what it produces, a strong, steadfast faith. And that's important. It's important that we aren't joyful and happy because of the specific trial. We aren't happy, we aren't joyful that there is pain. We're happy and we express joy for what it does, where it leads, how we grow. Joy is not happiness. And that's important that we see James is not calling us in our afflictions to be happy. Happy is more of those emotive feelings, these emotional feelings that rise up that are the easy response to our circumstances. That's happiness. Joy is something different. Joy is a characterization of our outlook and our life. So it may not be expressed in all smiles that are contrived or even in all smiles that might be natural. That might, true joy might lead you there even. But there is a distinction between those things, and joy is a greater understanding of the gospel applied to your life, and thus you still can grieve in joy. You can still express the pain in joy, but the overall outlook of your life is one that you understand what God's doing. And that's exactly where James goes. Look at verse 3. Why consider it joy? Verse 3, for you know, you know this, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Would anyone here deny that? Would anyone here say, no, that's not true? Trials don't produce a steadfast faith. I don't grow in my trials. Is that really true? You see, we can say the same thing James does. You know this. You know what trials do. They produce a steadfast, strong faith. Knowing that, are we not then to express joy for what God is doing in it? Thankfulness that he cares enough to cause us to grow. There are four key words in verse 3. Knowing, testing, faith, and steadfastness. We're going to look at each of them. Knowing, testing, faith, steadfastness. First, knowing. James is building his argument. He doesn't leave it empty by just saying, pick yourself up, be joyful. He says, why? Knowing. What it produces. You know it. 
I need to interject there how important it is for us to tell ourselves what we know. You see, too often we have on the top shelf in our brain, here's the gospel truth, here's what we know, and then as we're living and circumstances come against us and we face trials, we deal with it all here and we never reach up and we never grab what we know and say, if this is true, how does this affect what I'm going through? Because this is true, now how do I view it? And all of a sudden, for James, his, his audience, those who are on the run facing persecutions and trials and famine and poverty and all these things, you know what this is doing. It's for your good. You're growing. You see, too often, we want to exchange knowing the truth and applying it for just venting. Just being able to vent or just being able to complain, just be able to express the difficulty. And that's not always bad. I want to be clear there. It is good to talk about trials. It is good to unburden yourself to others, to receive counseling. That's not bad when the goal is, is faith and strength. But so often, that's not what we're after. So often what we're after is just the ability to say it's bad. And I don't like it. To never really rise up and think, what's God doing through? To never tell yourself, you know, yeah, you're right. This is really bad. God's got this wrong. That's what that response is. God really messed this up. Or just not having enough patience to endure. And I don't say that lightly. For we are called to endure, and many of us are called to endure very difficult trials for long periods of time, sometimes whole lives. But if God is calling us to do that, he has his purpose, and that's what we know. And that's what James is saying. You know this. Carry it out. Don't have an empty knowledge where it's tucked away and never used, never brought forth, never changes your behavior. What a sad reality if knowing this truth about trials never, never had any effect on the trials we face. That's sad. Yet how amazing to know something that does affect and change how we view our life and what we're going through. That's the first word, you know, knowing the second testing. What are we knowing? We're knowing that God's testing. That's so important. It's so important to know that this is a test. Why is it important to know that it's a test? It's because it's God who's administering it. And a test is not designed for our failure. Perhaps we can conceive in our lives of some tests that are designed to make you fail. But generally speaking, the tests that we face, the tests that are given to us, and the tests that we face in our lives are not those designed to make us fail. They're those designed to make us succeed. The tests in school are always designed that you would grow and learn. There's a desired outcome. You see, when you are facing a test, your good is the very goal. And that's here as well. Because our trials are not just simply trials, they're tests. God testing our faith. Meaning God allowing our faith to grow. Giving us an opportunity to grow. You can pray for the end of the trial. You ought to pray for the end of the trial to see that God brings it out and to praise Him for it. 
What we can't do is respond to trial with misery and despair and anxiety as if the truth of the gospel were not real. That's to waste a trial. It's not to use it to its full extent. Trials are fertile opportunities. And that's really what we're called to see them as. An opportunity for fertile faith. An opportunity that you have... You have been given by God where he tests you and you want to grow within the test. How do I respond? And as God tests us and will continue to test us, we grow. We draw near to him. And you know what? So often it won't feel like it. Back there I say, most often, when you're James's audience, when you're undergoing the trial and persecution, you've been in it for years... You don't see the growth of your faith. But it's there when we respond the way James is saying. We might feel at wit's end, and that's why James is saying this as we began. What's that most important step? The next step of faith. Continuing on, because you know the truth. You know the goal of the test. So that's our second word, testing. God tests because otherwise we would not learn. It's as plain as that. God tests. Otherwise we would not learn. We know it. And that's why James says it. So our third word, faith. So God is doing this. You know that he's testing, but what is he testing? Faith. This word is important for the whole book. Like I said, what undergirds everything James is seeking to accomplish here is the overflow, the outflow of faith, and how specifically in these verses faith responds to trials. This word is that important, and he shows it here. The trials serve the purpose of strengthening faith, and particularly to produce a certain kind of faith. And you see it in the, in the text itself, a steadfast faith. Because it's faith that's being tested, we see that's, what, that's James's intent, to see what grows. What is this thing that becomes steadfast? What's this thing is in the next verse becomes perfect and complete that doesn't lack? Yes, it's us, but what is it in us? It's us in our faith. That's what's growing. And so, we don't need to camp anymore on faith. We see what he's talking about, and we see what faith it is, and that's our fourth word, steadfastness. That's a beautiful word. We need to make it a goal of our life that that would be the word in the back of our minds, steadfast. And why is that a word in the back of our minds? Because it's an attribute of God himself. God is steadfast. God is faithful. And what this is saying is that we would, in essence, be faithful in return to God. Steadfast in that way. Another word for steadfast is persevering. It's, it's the perseverance that we seek and that God works in us. The words that's used here in the original language have the picture of a person successfully carrying a heavy load for a long time. That's an apt depiction of what we face, bearing a heavy load for a long time. But what you don't want to be is the one who collapses under that load. <clears throat> I'm not getting at either here, they, like, just let's be strong enough, guys. Let's do it. That's not it. 
This would be a hopeless command from James if we didn't realize the one working behind the scenes, the one working the test, God himself, who's enabling the carrying of the heavy load. That's the point. No, you can't carry that load by yourself. But it's a take hold of this truth, know this truth, and carry that burden for a long time. Carry that burden however long God has called you to. Remember, remember Paul, that thorn in the flesh, and he prayed, he prayed those times, remove it. But it wasn't removed, and God left it for a purpose. That Paul would have a stronger faith and a humility in that faith. Turn always to God, and so we endure and we bear and we remain steadfast. Don't seek to run in the midst of trials. Run away. Seek to bear it patiently and endure. And don't seek the strength to continue in yourself. It's not there. Never was. And it won't be. It's in the gospel. It's in the knowledge of who Christ is and what he's done and what your endurance produces. Greater love for him, greater faith in him, greater faithfulness to him. We have to hear a warning. Sinclair Ferguson gave, gives a good warning about this. He says, sometimes you see people that respond very poorly in a trial and fly off into frustration or anger or despair, and then they say, I'm sorry I lost control. I don't normally do that. Normally I'm a very patient person. And he said at times he would like to say to them, even though he doesn't, I don't think you're normally a patient person. I don't think you normally are calm and you just stumbled. I just don't think you've had your patience tested. And now it is. He says you need situations that would create impatience in order to create patience. You need situations that would create impatience in order to create patience. Otherwise, your patience is just a figment of your imagination. And that's hard to hear. That's good. Our steadfast faith would be a figment of our imagination if it weren't tested by God. How would we ever know that our faith was steadfast? How would we ever have assurance of our faith knowing that God is there? Knowing that we believe unless we believe through very difficult times. And yes, as we've already said, how do we ever grow unless God did this? You need times trial. You need them. That's why God obliges. Hebrews 12 talks about that as the father who disciplines Jesus. God is he who disciplines as a loving father. And there Hebrews says that you accept that from your earthly parents, knowing what it produces in you. You respond and you grow up and you call them blessed and good parents when they have discipled you and trained you, even disciplined you. Where they didn't shelter you from all things, but allowed you to grow. That's a good parent. Same thing here. Muscles don't grow without weight and resistance. That old saying, no pain, no gain, it's true. It's true physically, it's true spiritually. Which isn't to say when things go well, ignore your faith. You can grow when you're not in a trial, but God grows and produces growth for us in tests. When we can put what we've done and heard into practice. We are soldiers, people of God. 
Is it foolish for a soldier heading off to the battle? You can see it out the window and the bombs are exploding and there's bullets flying. And Would it be foolish for the soldier to see it and say, Boy, I hope it's not that hard. I hope I, hope I don't find myself in a difficult situation. You see, God's word says there's a battle that you're in. And so what it doesn't promise is an easy life. But it does warn and does say there's that battle and here's how you get through it. And know what God's doing through it. That's what's so vital. So, count it all joy. This isn't a hopeless quest. We are not alone. God tests and works it. So, count it all joy. The joy of trials is a strong, steadfast faith. Your faith should be that that grows. Your faith should be that, that though we go up and down and fall, and though we have times where we... See weakness in our faith and have to grow again. Your faith should be that which you see is stronger now than it was ten years ago. And don't weigh that according to your feelings. Weigh that according to how firmly you hold to Christ. That's the whole goal here. In verse 4, is the conclusion of the text, it says, And let steadfastness, so that's the goal, right? That steadfastness we're talking about. Let steadfastness have its full effect. And this is beautiful. You just got to pause sometimes. You actually, most of the time, all the time, let's say that. You got to pause all the time when you're reading God's word and see what it's saying. And the beauty there, let steadfastness have its full effect. What's that effect? What is it? That you may be perfect. Complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect should be understood here as, as the idea of full maturity. Full maturity. That you might be fully mature in that sense, that, that, that sense of perfect maturity and a faith that doesn't lack. It's complete. You're not lacking in anything. You're not lacking in the ability to go through trials. That ability isn't yourself. It's your faith. It's that steadfast faith that's being produced by the, the trials. What happens with that? Well, when we're steadfast in our faith, we have all we need, is what this text is saying. You're not lacking when you have that. And notice what it doesn't say. You're not lacking when your circumstances are the way you want it. And it doesn't say you're not lacking when you feel strong and when you feel like everything's good. That's when we think we're not lacking. That's when we think all is well when we're not pressed. And what James is saying is that in the midst of this trial, when you're steadfast in it, now you don't lack. Now you're perfect and complete. The carbon copy is a great illustration here. Some of us... Some of us know a carbon copy, not all of us do. I used to work for my dad, and they were an old school business, and they used carbon copies for a long time. What's a, what's a carbon copy? Well, it's a piece of carbon paper that you would put underneath something like a contract or something, and as you would write on the top piece of paper, your signature or whatever was being written there would be pressed into the carbon copy at the bottom. And so the signature that was on one page was perfectly mirrored in the other one. Maybe dimly so, it wasn't the original copy, but it was there. There was that imprint there. But the only way to express that signature was to place pressure on the paper, to write it out. And it was the pressure applied to the paper that transferred the image of the one onto the other. We are called to be carbon copies of Christ in this sense. 
And how do we become carbon copies of Christ? How do we mimic him and image him, the pressure that's applied in the tests? Responding the way Christ did, and as the Holy Spirit works that in us, we become like that. We become like him. It takes pressure. It takes tests. It takes us responding to them so that we grow and see our faith. It gives us that assurance. So you become steadfast, perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I want to end with a true example of this. I, I say this because it's one we likely all have in our own families or experiences or at least those we've heard of from others. And this happened in my own life. My uncle loved this text. You know, many others like it. He was diagnosed with leukemia in his middle years, and it was a pretty fast-working form of it, and he didn't last that long in the physical speaking. And physically speaking, his health deteriorated rapidly. He went from a very active, very strong man who became, in physically speaking, a shell of himself, a bald shell who didn't have any more of that strength, who even needed his nephews like me and my brother to come and help with some of the most normal household tasks. There's, there's his strength. And he held to these verses. And physically, he died in a very short time. And yet this verse was underlined in his Bible, just like many others, and he comported himself this way all the way to the end. And you know what's ironic? You know what's ironic about it? Was he strongest at the end or not? And the world would say he was weakest. His strength was gone. Vitality of life was not there. He had cancer, that thing we all fear. And many of us deal with in ourselves or our own families, that thing that brings so much pain. That's the worst form of life. And yet by considering it joy, he was ushered into glory, remaining steadfast to the end. So was he weakest at the end? No, James would say he was strongest. The irony is there at the end. He was perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, as he clung to our true Savior, considered it a joy to go through trials that tested his faith. That's what we're called to. That's what James is saying, and I use that illustration because that is an everyday illustration of the trials of life and how we grow. How the joy of of trials is a strong, steadfast faith. So count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Because God's testing of your faith produces a faith without lack. Let's go to God and thank him and ask for the strength to do this very thing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that these words are not easy to hear. And for some of us, these words are in fact quite intense and quite painful. Painful because of the difficulty, because of the very pain the trial brings. Yet these words are also so encouraging and beautiful. To have the the very rule of life hold back, to see what you're doing, 
to see that through them we grow closer to you, to see that through them our faith in Christ grows and is nourished and is transformed, and that we do become, in clinging to you, those who don't lack, who have what we need. We pray that you would help us to then count all of our trials, the myriad trials we face, that we count them as joy. Help us to do it well. Help us to do it in compassion and understanding for others, but may we nonetheless stand on this truth that even the difficulties of life are in your hand, used for our good. We praise you because you are glorified even in how we remain steadfast. Yet you work it out. We cannot. So we ask, Lord, give us a steadfast faith in our trials. We pray